Welcome to We Are Curious Cumbria, exploring the connections between people, place and nature over the passage of time. In this episode, we're diving into the 11th century where we're curious about Macbeth's connection to the Lords of Allerdale. We're talking to our friend David Brussel, actor, one-time solicitor and judge and now a debut author. Later, if there's time, with a feature in praise of mixed heteros. Then again, perhaps we'll make that a dedicated podcast in the very near future, we'll see. But first up, on Monday, it really did feel like spring out there. Well, grey weather has returned, but we're going to start with a short ambient tune produced by our occasional music collective, Los Perros Estereo. Sit back, close your eyes, and imagine the warmth of the sun on your skin. No protection factor 50 needed. Historical research we carry out to deliver this podcast, namely research into the histories of Bridekirk and Gilcruise parishes, hasn't a great deal of academic merit. We're not professional historians by any stretch of the imagination, but our research is born from an interest in the history of people at large, and we're especially curious about the origins of Cumbrian identity and when a sense of Cumbria came into being as we understand Cumbria today. We use lots of sources, archaeological assessments, historic documents such as charters. We visit the archive centres in Carlisle and Whitehaven. And we try and keep things fairly simple when it comes to telling you a story, because there are so many names and events to remember. 
please remember, if you're feeling a bit lost, you can always hit the pause button. Also, if you have any questions, email us. We are curiouscumbria at gmail.com and we'll do our best to answer them next time. So, the first episode of a mini-series about the Lords of Valadale, episode one, with a connection to talk about today between Macbeth, who was the King of Scotland during the mid-11th century, and the Lords of Allerdale. For those of you listening from elsewhere, Allerdale is a non-metropolitan district of Cumbria in which the civil parishes of Bridekirk and Gilcruz, along with many other parishes, lie. In the 11th century, Scotland and England, as we know, Scotland and England today, didn't exist. And while there were kings and queens, lords, ladies and so on, there were a number of kingdoms, centuries-old kingdoms, in Scotland, there was the Kingdom of Alba and the Kingdom of Murray, for instance, and several other kingdoms. And in England, and also pertinent to our podcast, there was the Kingdom of Strathclyde, which Cumbria, the Cumbria we know today, was a part of at various times. And there was the Kingdom of Northumbria, lots of others, but the Kingdoms of Alba, Murray, Strathclyde and Northumbria are particularly important to our story. By the 12th century, Strathclyde was moving closer to an area from the Clyde to Cumbria. This was a great expansion, and most historians today, namely Professor Dorvit Brune, think this expansion of the Kingdom of Strathclyde was helped because the Kingdom of Northumbria, which had another period expanding north and west during the 11th century, was allied with Strathclyde. In 1070, in William the Conqueror's reign, the Northumbrian Kingdom was suppressed, the harrying of the north. Their extensive territory fell to the kings of Strathclyde, who dominion over a big territory extending to the Solway and the Tweed. Anyhow, we'll be talking about the Kingdom of Strathclyde in greater detail in another podcast. So to Macbeth, the play by Will Shakespeare. It's a story of power, greed, good versus evil, or suspicion. It's a play with three wayward sisters, or witches, in it. Were there any witches in Bridekirk or Gilcruz? Well, that's a story for another day. But it's worth mentioning the witches now, in the context of Shakespeare's play, because the play, written in around 1606, was written during the reign of James I, and James, it's completely fair to say, was afraid of witchcraft. He hated witchcraft, and considering himself to be something of an intellectual, he'd published a treatise about witchcraft called Demonology. Shakespeare's Macbeth, then, was written to please his king. Set the scene in the play for us, Mark, if you will. At the beginning of the play, you've got three witches in a cave with a big bubbling cauldron and... uh, doing kind of witchy stuff. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Open locks, whoever knocks. Enter stage left, uh, you have Macbeth, and the witches deliver the prophecy of his titles and greatness to come. They also give him a warning of Macduff, who's a threat to him, and also they tell him that uh, he cannot be killed by man of woman born. And then we have old King Duncan being murdered in his bed by the wicked Macbeth, the the usurper king, uh, aided by his equally wicked wife who uh, hides the murder weapon and fits up the servants for the murder of their king. Uh, And later on in the story, we get uh, an invasion by the Earl of Northumbria, Seward, who uh, puts Duncan's son Malcolm back on the throne in his rightful position as King of Scotland. So Duncan's son Malcolm, we're talking about Malcolm Camel, aren't we? Malcolm III. That's correct, yeah. 
So tell us what really happened then. What was the what were the real chain of events? Well, funny old thing. Um, obviously, things were a lot more complicated than that. There's a, a conflicts within different royal families and, and so forth. Macbeth, for instance, was a, a king in his own right uh, in Murray, and his wife, who was actually called Gruch in real life, the first Scottish queen to be given a name, I think, on any texts. She uh, was, again, royal descent, uh, a daughter of Kenneth III of, of Scotland. When you say Scotland, you mean Kenneth Gruch's grandfather was Kenneth McAlpine, king of Alba. Yes, it, it is Alba, and you're quite right. Uh, her, it, uh, Kenneth was her grandfather. I did say father before, didn't I? Kenneth was uh, a McAlpine, uh, part of the ruling family, but he was actually on the wrong side of the family. A story for another day. A story for another day, indeed. And Macbeth's family were also probably related to the kings of Alba. It's thought, it's not totally proven, but they think his mother was a lady called Donada, who was a daughter of King Malcolm II, who had been uh, a king of Alba. Now, Duncan, who is the old boy that dies uh, in the Shakespeare play, was actually quite a young man. Well, he was probably in his late 30s when he's killed in 1040. Uh, he is actually a Cumbrian, or Strathclyde Cumbrian, that is. He, his father, Crinin, uh, was from Strathclyde Cumbrians, and his mother was a lady called Bethock, uh, and she was also another daughter of Malcolm II of Scotland. So, Crinan's wife, Bethock, the daughter of King Malcolm II, and Donada, Macbeth's mother, or at least thought to be his mother, is also a daughter of King Malcolm II, so Bethock and Donada are sisters. They are indeed. Um, Bethock is the older sister. Now, Duncan, he actually is killed in battle. Uh, what happens, and this is quite interesting, is traditionally the kings of the Scots... When I, said, uh, when I said kings of Scotland, I mean traditionally northern kings in the area, which is now Scotland. When you became a new king, to show what a good, hard warrior you were, you went and invaded somewhere. And he doesn't do this. Uh, well, he, he takes five years to do it. I mean, it's normally done in the first year or so. And I suspect that the reason for that is he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to go to war, particularly against Northumbria, who are the, the normal target. So we're talking about King Duncan here, aren't we? Uh, yes, that's right, King Duncan. Duncan's wife, who is Danish probably, she, came, she would have come from what was then part of Northumbria. What's Duncan's wife called? Uh, Duncan's wife is, uh, can be known as Southern. She has other names as well. Okay, and and when you say she comes from Northumbria, you mean that she probably comes from the York area, which, as we've summarised nearer to the beginning, was once a part of the Northumbrian kingdom? It was, and it will shortly become so again under um, Seward. She is thought to be uh, a relation, a cousin probably, of Seward. Southern, uh, Duncan's wife, is important. She's probably dead by now, but she is important because she is the mother of Malcolm Canmore, and she has another son as well called Donald, who doesn't actually come into the play. Also, Duncan's younger brother, Maldred, was married to a lady. She was a daughter of um, the former Earl of Northumbria. That's Edith, right? A daughter of Uta de Bold. Correct. So with family connections like that, going to war with Northumbria is not really a brilliant idea, but he would have been pushed into it. Who pushed him into it? I would have thought the uh, 
caught um, his warriors and all those people that the Scots, you know, wanted him to do the right thing as a new king of Alba. The politics of the Alba posse. Absolutely. And then he loses. Uh, so his credibility as a warrior, as a king, is shattered and his power is weakened. I suspect a lot of people in Scotland thought he should be replaced and Macbeth was probably a very good person to replace him. Uh, he was a true Scot and uh, impeccable lineage, really. And Duncan, fearing some form of treachery, went up north to uh, punish Macbeth. Uh, and he loses again and, and he, he's killed. Um, so Duncan is killed in 1040. Yes, that's right. In the Shakespeare play, all these events happen very quickly. He, he gets murdered in bed. <laughs> so just to reiterate, in Shakespeare's play, it's Duncan, isn't it, that gets killed in his bed? Duncan gets murdered in his bed in the play. And Macbeth gets killed. Macbeth gets killed at the end of the play um, by uh, his the Thane of Fife, Macduff. Uh, this took a long, long time. It took um, four, he, was in, he was king for about 17 years. What actually happens is he uh, consolidates his power and he even finds time to go off to Rome to meet the Pope. What also happens is... That about five years after the killing of Duncan, uh, Macbeth is in action again against Duncan's family, which is obviously Duncan's father and mother, who's probably Macbeth's aunt and, and brother, and they, they are killed. But fortunately for us, or for the rest of all these stories, Duncan's brother's wife and child escape because their descendants are going to come into these stories much later on. Let's remind our listeners who Duncan's family are. Crinan, who's... Duncan's dad, Bethock, who's Duncan's mum, Muldred, Prince of the Cumbrians, brother of Duncan, and Muldred's wife, Edith. And they have a son, don't they? They do indeed. And he's called Gospatrick, but uh, he will come into play in later episodes. What happens next is, is quite interesting as far as Seward is concerned. Seward, Old Seward, as he's called in the play, um, he was a Danish warrior who had come to note during the reign of Canute, uh, and he would serve um, three other kings after Canute. He, he, outl- he outlived three kings. He's quite an old boy by the time of um, the Macbeth story, or by the time the Macbeth story ends. In fact, Macbeth outlives him. But uh, Seward was a very good soldier, um, and uh, he had connections with the Danish royal family, as do quite a few people actually in the Macbeth story. And uh, essentially what he does is he becomes at some point round about 1023 at the earliest, he's become the Earl of York, which at one time was part of Northumbria, but at that time it isn't. And then later on, he becomes theoretically the Earl of all of Northumbria. And the way he does that, is he marries the granddaughter of Uhtred the Bold, who's like the, the, the daddy of a very prominent ruling family. Seward's wife, what, what's Seward's wife called? Uh, yeah, she's, Elfled is his wife, and she's a, a granddaughter of Uhtred the Bold. And then she's the uh, niece of the current Earl of Northumbria. He then kills him and becomes the Earl of Northumbria, which is the sort of thing you, you did in those days. Why did he do this? We strongly suspect he's been asked to do this by the new king, Arthur Canute, who is the son of Canute by Emma of Normandy. 
There was another brother who was briefly the king who died the same year as Duncan, actually 1040, Harold Harefoot. Uh, and he was very popular in the north and he was very interested in the north, which is quite unusual for English kings. But when Harthur Canute comes in, he wants to root out all opposition, i.e. people who had supported his stepbrother. It's most likely that the, the assassination of uh, the Earl of Northumbria, Edolf, is done on behalf of the king. Uh, and you would imagine that um, Seward wouldn't be particularly popular with the rest of the family. But funnily enough, years later, he, they seem to like him. That may be because he starts dishing out land and titles, presumably with the approval of the king. Because what we do find is that Maldred, who's the brother of Duncan when he's still alive, uh, gains the title of, uh, he's the Lord of Carlisle, and he's the Lord of Allerdale, and he gets some other titles as well. He gets, uh, he's the Regent of Strathclyde. Um, so we can suspect that he's doling out a lot of good stuff to these people. Also, this is the time of uh, the expansion of Northumbria, and so a lot of people are getting, people in the north are getting positions of power. And what he's trying to do is to create a large Cumbria which can act as a buffer zone between the Scots and the English. Could you explain what a buffer zone might be? Well, when the Scots are attacking Northumberland, which generally means they're attacking Durham, uh, rather than fight their way right the way through uh, Northumberland, they tend to go through Strathclyde and through the southern part of Cumbria uh, and then sweep back in. Um, reason for that being that uh, it's an area with very little population. What they'll come across is you know, small farmsteads and uh, no serious resistance. So by establishing uh, a more militarised area, you know, particularly things like Carlisle, uh, it makes quite a significant barrier for that kind of movement. And uh, this is what he does. Uh, later on, obviously, there is... Uh, an expedition into Scotland, which is where Macbeth gets defeated. Uh, this happens in 1054, and the exact reason why, because it's, it's quite a long time later he does that, is not absolutely clear. Um, but the most likely thing is to limit the power of the Scots so that this, these Cumbrian lands, you know, whether they're Strathclyde Cumbrian or, or Northumbrian, can function. And interestingly enough, what he does do defeat Macbeth uh, and it's a pretty messy war because he loses his own son in it it's uh, a lot of people get killed in that for by the st standards of the day battles are often quite small it's Seward's son isn't it that gets killed in the battle Seward loses his eldest son uh, Osborne but Macbeth isn't killed Macbeth is down but he's not out so Seward is Macbeth's connection to the Lords of Allerdale because Seward who serves the King of England, either Arthur Canute or Edward the Confessor. Seward is the person who doles out the title, or the titles Lord of Allerdale, etc., to Muldred. So it's not a familial connection to Macbeth, but Muldred's father, Crinan, is probably Macbeth's cousin? Uh, yes, probably, but we, what we can say with definite certainty is that Muldred is Duncan, the king, that's killed at the beginning of the play, his brother. Hang on, scratch that. A definite certainty. Um, nothing in history is, is definite or certain. And traditionally, it has been considered that Maldred, Maldred and Duncan are brothers. 
But uh, in more recent years, some historians have questioned that. There's always somebody that wants to spoil a good story. So Macbeth is down but not out. And having defeated Macbeth, who has Seward really put in charge? That's a very interesting question. history at school but when you actually hold something or have something in your house that's like the clock you know that was made in 1740 and you think you know that was before the battle of Annaburn that was before um, the wars of independence in America and it's sat in farmhouses for all that time ticking away it comes from the Wigton school uh, Wigton was quite a center of clockmaking, and it's James Hendry who made this clock, was one of the foremost clockmakers in Wigton. He married late but had ten children, and his younger son carried on the, the tradition, and his daughter married the son of another clockmaker. Every piece was handmade. All the workings, all the cogs were cut out of a sheet of brass and and filed into shape. Uh, Gordon has got a, a similar clock with exactly the same case, made by John Simpson, who was again another clockmaker from later than Hendry, but from Wigton. And it seems that was a sort of classic Wigston, Wigton style case. And it just ticks away and chimes once an hour, and it adds something to the cottage, I think. And to think it, it's clearly not a rich man's clock, Likely a farmer's clock, I would think. So it's probably sat in farm houses around between Wigton and here. If only clocks could talk. It'll have some stories to tell, which would link in with your research, I suspect. It's such a lovely room. I love this room. Mm. All of these pictures. Well, I've always had a sort of family room, and that's both my parents' parents and then my parents. Astonishingly, the guy in the in the soldiers' uniforms, my maternal grandfather. To the right of that, at sort of two o'clock, is a little girl with chickens. That is my mother when she was three years old, looking after her chickens. And I discovered the photograph quite by chance. I didn't know who it was, and it's on the back it says, yeah, my mother lived till she was 90, and that was 20 years ago. So that's over 100 years old, that photo. And then this side is more, more, more up to date. But again, my parents. Now the guy in the red jumper there is Richard Wordsworth, who's an actor, a great friend of my father's, who was a direct descendant of William. He moved up to live at Rydal Mount, um, and that's taken there. My parents went to visit them. Later on in his acting career, he developed a, a talk on Wordsworth and he would tour America 
giving these lectures on, on Wordsworth. And then on the other side of the spotlight, the guy in the red is my godfather, Douglas Argent, who was really my dad's best, best friend, who um, became a television producer for the BBC. And he started on Dixon and Doc Green, but he got into comedy. So he did Till Death Us Depart, he did Faulty Towers, uh, he did Spike Milligan's Q, Q9 or whatever it was. So I'm a real pioneer in comedy. And he said he worked, he worked with Spike Milligan, Patricia Hayes and Bob Todd. And he said it was a nightmare because they're all such big drinkers. He could never find them. To drag them out to do some rehearsal. Another friend of my father's, um, Charlie Morgan, Welshman, uh, he worked with um, Tommy Cooper. He said it was impossible because he never wanted to rehearse. Again, he was a big drinker. Uh, Charlie was funny, he's often coming for Sunday lunch to us, and he'd come in and he'd always go, So I threw the money on the bed and I said to the girl's father, and he stopped at that, and we all laughed, but we'd never heard the joke. <laughs> I was born in, um, in Hampshire, on the coast, a place called Barton-on-Sea. We lived in South London for a while, but most of my life, we lived in Weybridge in Surrey, which is a commuter town. I lived there 50 years. My youngest son had dyslexia. And so we wanted him to go to a school which would be sympathetic to that. And there was a place called Seaford College, but we didn't particularly want him. I'm a boarding school child and I didn't like boarding school. So I didn't want him to have the same thing. So we decided to move down to Petworth so that he could then be a day boy. So my first experience of living in a sort of country environment was in, in Petworth. And as townies, we're always told, well, you can never join in in the country that you're never accepted. But that wasn't my experience. Uh, I think if as a townie you go in and try to throw your weight around and be superior, then you will be resented. But if you just go in and be yourself, I was surprised how readily accepted I, I was. And I would say I had the, had the same experience up here. You know, I've been, I was amazed, I was looking it up before this, that I came here the year after Derek shot Kevin Commons to work at Kevin Commons. That's 12 years ago now. So I started off in Tallentire and I found everyone very welcoming and accepting there. Then moved to Deerham for a bit. Now I've been here, I think, three years. Exactly the same. I think if you're yourself, people accept you for what you are. I guess um, my life history is such that I have interesting stories to tell, both as an actor, as a defence lawyer, and then as a judge. People very rarely meet a judge, and I'm quite an approachable person. So to find someone who's held that sort of position, but is accessible and friendly and talkative and not standing on their position, that has helped me join in. And of course, I joined in with the village. We really have joined in with the village. There was the Remembrance Sunday service that was absolutely brilliant, you know, and involving 
other people, not not just from this parish, but from other parishes as well? Well, it was a great experience, a joy to actually develop the talents of people like Mark and, and Sarah Todd and use my knowledge from being a professional actor to enable them to produce performances which everyone then admired. The day that I walked into this house to view it, I could feel it hadn't been lived in for nine months, there was no heating on, but I could immediately feel a warmth. And, you know, going back in the records, there's been buildings here since, what, 1500 yeah. or even earlier. So it's definitely an old house. But you can feel, I think, it's got a happy atmosphere because of the hundreds of people who've lived here and the lives they've had. I understand that originally that this was two houses and it, the steelworks offered the managers free loans. So a manager bought Charlotte's house next door, this house, and also the barn conversion at the back. Um, and they're all connected, and they're still connected. I get my water through from Charlotte next door. Um, the, the main drainage comes through under my house from the, the uh, barn conversion at the back. Hello. I think you're going to be on a podcast. What's she's tubby. She, she's tubby. Because she's always been tubby. Uh, she's real Mother Earth. She, she has is. tiger stripes. You have tiger... Oh, she's very funny. No, she's asking you to stroke her. Oh, That's what she's you? saying, okay. yeah. Is she just a youngster? Yeah, she... And I've got two cats. They're sisters. And they came from my daughter-in-law, who's a vet. They were rescue cats. But she's not shy in coming forward. No. If she wants a stroke, she comes and taps you on the arm and says, come on. Stroke me. <laughs> I was uh, in the bush last Sunday with uh, Mike Hunter, the gamekeeper, who is in his 80s and has said he was wants to write a book. And he picked up my book and said, that's a very thin life, he said. Mine will be that size and two or three times as big. I said... Michael, that's only a week in my life. It's been a great help to me um, being welcomed into villages in that it's come through going to pubs and chatting to people. And I think that and sport, I've, I've played cricket all my life, that um, sports clubs and, and pubs are great ways to make new friends when you come to a new place. So your book is available on Amazon? Um, as a printed, or you can order it as a printed book as I have. I forgot to bring it with me because I'd like you to sign it, please. And it's also available as a, a Kindle. But, um, obviously, it's much yes. nicer for people if they can, if they can afford to, to buy. Yeah. To buy well, I can also say that um, I've now arranged with Cockermouth Bookstop that they're going to stock some copies as well. Brilliant. Yes, it's readily available. Signed copies, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, yes. excellent. So how can you represent someone you know is guilty? Well, I think you should read the book. But I think, firstly, you have to say the English law says that you're innocent until you're proved guilty. And so at the start, someone is presumed innocent, whatever the police think, whatever anyone else thinks. And everyone is entitled 
to have their story put before a court. It's my function as a defence advocate to um, put forward their story as best I can. And I was thinking about this this morning um, because I've not only occupied the position of a defence advocate, I've occupied the position of a judge. And I think whatever position you come from, defence, prosecution or judge, you have to set aside your personal feelings to put forward your case or to decide your case. Um, you know, I'm sure that prosecutors may sometimes have to prosecute someone for breaking a law which they perhaps don't agree with. Um, you know, I used to sit in Blackpool quite a lot, so I was involved with um, the fracking protesters. And I sat in Portsmouth and dealt with um, anti-nuclear protesters. Um, and I had to sublimate whatever feelings I might have about fracking or about nuclear armament or disarmament and look at what the law said. And so I wasn't making a comment about whether I agreed or disagreed with protesters. Um, what I was doing was deciding whether their behaviour was lawful, whether they had protested lawfully, or alternatively whether the security staff had acted legally in defending the site against protesters, or whether they had overstepped the law. Um, and so it's the law that is important, because um, without, without law, without rules, we don't have a society. Until 1835, I think it was, if you stole something valued at more than a shilling, the punishment was hanging. Um, talking in the pub with people who said we should bring back capital punishment, and I was saying, well, it's not a deterrent. There's a saying in English, isn't there? I might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. And that comes from the time when it was a hanging offence to steal. So it, it actually worked in reverse. I might as well steal more if I'm going to end up being hung. And funnily enough, um, in America, where they still have capital punishment, Crimes actually go up after an execution, not down. Often the law is wrong, but that's why it's so important for us all to exercise our democratic rights yes. and to fight for what we think is right. I'm really hoping you can... <laughs> I'm really hoping the clock... Well, it will. Of course it will. <laughs> any, any second now. It's <laughs> a nice touch, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, yeah, really, um, the, the, I, I, I look in, I also look in our Bailey records, which are available online and, you know, really fascinating. Uh, yeah, well, you know, until the 1940s or 30s, when a woman married, she became the property of her husband. Yes. Uh,
Well, it had to be the longest chime, didn't it? <laughs> it was wonderful. That was perfectly timed. All authors need, need people to buy their books and so support you and your next book. Well, I think in the same way that if a doctor goes to a party, he gets inundated with people asking, uh, for uh, him to explain the symptoms they've got. Um, for a defence solicitor, everyone always asks, how can you represent someone you know is guilty? Which I think is the wrong question, because it doesn't actually uh, consider all the other things a defence solicitor does. And while at the start of the book I try to answer the question, how can you represent someone you know is guilty, um, the bulk of the book is examples of what I did on a daily basis uh, to illustrate the wide range of jobs that a solicitor does. You know, it may be trying to persuade the court to impose an appropriate sentence on someone. It may be convincing someone that the story they want to put forward is ridiculous and that uh, they're better off pleading guilty and getting a lesser punishment. Um, so it's just not all about getting people off, but what it is about is making sure that the evidence is there to prove that someone has actually done what they've done. Um, because often the police um, are convinced. Uh, I've had policemen say to me, oh, we never arrest innocent people, um, which is patently not true. Um, and sometimes uh, they get the totally wrong end of the stick. I, the first chapter I wrote was um, actually saying it's far harder to represent someone you know is innocent because you know that there are miscarriages of justice and you're convinced your client hasn't done what is alleged and you're just worried that everything's going to go wrong. Um, you're trained as a lawyer not just to look at your own case but to look at the of the other side's case so that you can uh, challenge it and if in this particular case I, there just didn't seem to be any evidence at all and I was thinking what am I missing here um, if you read the book you'll find out the result <laughs> brilliant thank you so much is there anything else you want to talk about what would you like to talk about if anyone listening to the podcast has questions about your acting career or, or your legal career, can they get in touch? Yes, of course. Um, and I'm already planning a second volume uh, with more stories. Um, uh, so uh, I hope to cover that, but certainly... I'm happy to talk to anyone about uh, about things. Thank you. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it.
David Purcell's book, Duty Brief, A Week in My Working Life, is available from the new bookshop in Cockermouth, also online via Amazon and Kindle. There's also an article about David in the current issue, that's issue six, of the Village Post, which is a community magazine connecting Bridekirk, Dovenby, Gilcruz and Salantire. Questions for David can be emailed to him via wearecuriouscumbria at gmail.com. I must say, the Village Post is going from strength to strength thanks to their team of people with editor Marjorie Thompson at the helm. We Are Curious Cumbria has received a lot of interest from parishioners thanks in no small part to the Village Post, so thank you Marjorie and the team. I think that's all we've got time for now except to say thanks to everyone so far who's volunteered to help with the reclaim our past campaign we're running in collaboration with the village post and thanks for listening email us at wearecuriouscumbia at gmail.com with any questions this podcast was hosted by my friend and neighbour b and my friend mark the We Are Curious Cumbria podcast was edited and produced by We Are Curious Cumbria and the studio managers today were Molly Lackenby and Alfie Davies.
Let the sun shine in. 